January, our sales were probably $1,500 a month. And I was just like, what are we going to do? Like, how are we going to get these sales up? We're not doing these events. And by April, our sales went up to like $8,000 a month. So I was like, oh, great. People being home is allowing them to want to cook and like buy specialty food online. And so it really, I was like, oh, this COVID thing is actually going to work out. And then in June, we did $80,000. And yeah, we probably averaged out at about $100,000 a month after that every month. Hi, Offscripters. It's your host, Sewa Ajay Pele, and welcome to episode 140 of the She's Offscript podcast. This is a show where we hear and learn from women who've created unique blueprints for their business success. My hope is that you'll hear their stories and translate their gems into a unique path for yourself. In today's episode, we meet Ashley Rouse, who's the CEO of Low Sugar Vegan Jam Company, Trade Street Jams. Ashley went to culinary school and has been a chef for 15 years. Using jam flavors like smoked yellow peach and blueberry lemon basil, she also shares recipes that inspire us to go beyond just jam and toast. During our conversation, Ashley shares how she got started in the jam business. She shares how she's tripled her sales, how she went from making jams in her kitchen to using a manufacturer, and so much more. Before we hear the rest of Ashley's episode, I would love it if you could subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. This will help to spread the word about our show so amazing stories like Ashley's can continue to inspire women looking to launch their own off-script journeys. With that, let's go off-script with the CEO of Trade Street Jams, Ashley Rouse. Ashley Rouse, welcome to She's Off Script. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So for any of our listeners who haven't heard of you before, could you share who you are and what you do? Sure. I'm Ashley Rouse. I am the founder and CEO of Trade Street Jam Company. We make low sugar, culinary inspired vegan jams that are very clean label. And our whole mission is to introduce the world to a concept bigger than sugary jam on toast. So we're always sharing recipes for cocktails and and roasted veggies and yogurt and oatmeal and all these really fun chef-inspired applications, a little bit different than your traditional jam uses. So your jams typically have two to three, not very many ingredients. Why is it so important to you to create a clean jam. I mean, right? We need to eat clean. Like (laughs) it's so important. I think it's just so interesting because being healthy and like clean eating has always been important. But like for me in particular, in my generation, like growing up, it wasn't something we focused on. Like I never remember my mom saying like, Hey, this needs to be like vegan or, you know, low sugar or this, like we kind of just ate what we wanted to. And it's just important for us, right? We want to live long lives. We want to be healthy and have kids. And, you know, African-Americans suffer from diabetes. I think more than any other race, Americans in general are obese. Like We just like got to get it together and it doesn't have to be bad for you in order for it to taste good. And I feel like as a chef, it's like my civic duty to teach people that aren't aware of that. Oh, I love that. And you've been a chef for over 15 years, right? And also worked in hospitality marketing. So how did you go from doing that to making jams for a living? I always used to jam out 
out <laughs> back in the day. I loved like canning and preserving. And so I always did that on the side and just like gave it away as gifts and to friends and families for the holidays and things like that. And it's just something I love doing. I had a food blog back in the day called I Speak Kitchenese. And I was always like making jams and then making things with the jam. And I loved it. I had this like epiphany one day. I lived in this apartment on Trade Street in North Carolina. And I was like, oh, I would love to make a, a jam business one day and call it Trade Street Jam Company. And I, I think that was back in 2008. And just, I guess the idea never left my mind. And I moved to Brooklyn not that long ago around 2015, 2016, and just got super inspired by like everything in Brooklyn, right? It's, there's nothing like Brooklyn, New York in general. And so just started jamming again on the side as a hobby and started selling it uh, to try to make some extra money. And then here we are today. So how do you know when it's time to move it from hobby status to an actual viable business? How did you know? Yeah, I was going to say, how does one know? I can't tell you, girl. But for me, I think the moment came to me when I realized I was spending more time at my full-time job working on my side hustle than I was on my actual full-time job. I remember, I'll never forget, I remember this day, you know, I worked 10-hour shifts and I'm pretty sure I spent six hours doing jam things. And I remember feeling so guilty at the end of the day. I mean, I did my work, you know, I'm very good at time management. And well, I was then now being an entrepreneur, told a different story, but I was very good at time management and, you know, getting my work done and being a, a star employee. And so I knew how to manage both, but I just, I think because I was such a good employee, I felt so, so bad about spending so much time. And I just, I was like, gosh, I got to figure out how I can do just this. Can you imagine how much more efficient and successful I could be if I had all 10 hours. So that was the, that was the moment for me. Oftentimes that happens when you're a star employee, you are able to get so efficient at what you do that you are able to balance both. So you were then making jam on the side at home. Are you still making the jam at home? Oh my God. No, <laughs> I would die. Literally. <laughs> I think I might die. Yeah. Then I was making the jam in my apartment. And so I would come home after work and make them. We were doing like small batches of like I don't know, 20 to 30 jars or so. Okay. And I think about a year into doing that, I realized that was just like, you know, like it wasn't working, you know, I'm selling out of it pretty quickly. And so mm. I was like, okay, I got to kind of scale up a little bit. So I started doing some research for shared kitchen spaces that you rent out by the hour. And so about a year and we moved to a shared kitchen space. And then we started doing batches of, I think maybe a hundred jams. Okay which was a really nice, I guess, next step. And then we were, we started selling them at like markets and things like that. So that, you know, it sounded like a lot, the hundred jams. And I was kind of intimidated by the idea, but we ended up selling them pretty quickly when we we're doing like these summer fairs and, and farmer's markets and things like that. And about a year after that, we were exhausted. We being my husband who has no food service experience, who was absolutely miserable. And he's the sweetest person I know, never complained but I could see it on his face. I was just like, this is tough. You know, I was getting friends to help because I couldn't afford to hire help. And so about a year in, we finally moved to a co-packer. I didn't think I could afford it, but we did it. And so, yeah, we have someone that manufactures the jam today. I, God, I couldn't imagine. Mm. We're probably making about a thousand jars at a time. So. Wow. Now you said you didn't think you could afford it. How much does it take to get into a co-packer and what are the minimum quantities they were asking for? 
I think that was the issue, the minimum quantities. Most of the manufacturers were, I think, 100 gallons uh, minimum quantity, which for me, 100 gallons would probably make about 2,000 jars. So wait, is that right? Yeah, I think it would make about 2000 jars, give or take. And so that, I mean, that's like absurd when you're starting off, right? I was like, how could I afford that? Where will I sell that? I mean, how many jars were you selling in order to do that? Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure I was just barely selling the 100 of each flavor that we were making. And that's of each flavor, you know? And so I would probably move through that in a few months, like three months, maybe. So that was kind of like a threshold for me. I didn't want, you don't want product just sitting on the shelf. It eats into your expiration date and Mm -hmm. things like that. So, you know, those minimum quantities were just like ridiculous. And then we found a place that had a minimum quantity of 25 gallons, which made like 350 jars. And I was like, okay, that makes sense, right? A hundred jars to 350. And so there's some upfront cost to that, right? You have to like pay them to make it, you pay per jar basically. But I don't, we just did it. I think that's one of the funny things is there's so many things I don't remember the specifics because it's like, you just do it. It reminds me of motherhood. Like now that I'm a a new mom, it's like, people are like, how are you doing that in entrepreneurship? I don't know. You just do it, right? Like that's what we're here to do. Moms, women, you just get through it. You just get it done. I heard that you had saved almost a year's worth of runway. Did whatever you saved take you to that point of the year? So I want to clarify because I I didn't really save a year's worth of runway. And I I think that's an important point though, because a lot of people ask me like, how do you do it? How do you quit your job? Mm -hmm. And And some people do have that savings, but a lot of people don't. And so I didn't have that. What it was that my husband and I put down on paper, if we went through everything we both did have in our savings account, our separate savings accounts that we had just saved up over years, which was mm-hmm. not a ton by any means. I don't want anybody thinking it was like 30, 50,000. It wasn't at all. But if we went through our savings account, if we went through both of our 401ks, and then maybe, you know, if we got, I think there was an, another pocket of money somewhere, but like we were pulling all these little pieces together and we calculated that if we went through everything that we had, we could go a year. So, that was if Trade Street brought in no money at all. If Trade Street mm-hmm. brought $0 of revenue, we could go one year with on only one salary and we, but we would use those other pockets to like pay the bills and everything. And then at the end of that year, we would have nothing left. And if I wasn't profitable, I would need to go back to work. So right. yeah, does that make sense? That makes total sense. So it's not like you had that fund specifically for leaving. It was everything you had. Right, right. right. No, that's an important distinction because It just shows you that it's possible, right? You're going to have to hustle, but it's possible. So now you're at the point where you are working all hours, you're exhausted. And one of the things I loved about when I first found you is that your packaging and your overall aesthetic looked beautiful. Did you design it yourself? I did. Ooh, does that come from (laughs) your food marketing background? That looks really good. You know what? I think it comes from my God-given talent and the, and something that I love to do. And that, you know, like 
you can't be good at everything. There's God, there's so mm-hmm. many things I'm not good at, but there are some that I am. And the the creative piece of it, I'm not a designer by any means, but I like to design things, right? I like some graphic design. I like just putting marketing together. And I was working, doing some social media at my last job before I left to do this full time. And so I was getting really good at like making graphics and some in Photoshop and some in, you know, Illustrator, but some in Canva, like really simple things. And I say that because I created our label in PowerPoint and people always laugh at that, but I I literally built it in PowerPoint. I went through the internet and scoured for a design that really spoke to me and inspired me. And it it took months, but when I found something, it kind of, it was like a homemade label. It had this word bubble on it and it just spoke to me. It was like, you're saying something, right? I felt like it was saying something and that's what I wanted the product Mm -hmm. to be. Like I knew like the jam aisle so saturated. It's just so like it's not innovative. And I, like, I was like, if we're going to be in stores on shelves, like what will make people buy our product? What will make them even see our product over a Smuckers or mm-hmm. Bon Maman? And the, so the word bubble spoke to me. And then, so I kind of put a bunch of different things together. Once I got it to look like what I wanted, I printed it out on paper, wrapped it around the jar to figure out if it was the right size. And then like went to like a Vista print and ordered labels and then like tested them and then like adjusted and tweaked. I mean, literally no true skill here, you guys. But I say that to say like a lot of people like I can't afford a designer. Now, if you have no design skill, like then that's where your money has to go. And that's the thing about entrepreneurship is like, you can't do everything. It's impossible and you're not good at everything. Mm -hmm. You just aren't. And so where I did the design, you know, I might've put the money somewhere else. So, you know, you got to kind of pick and choose what you can do. And then you're going to have to spend some money, but you just got to be smart about it. Yeah. And I really appreciate that you had your eye on where you saw your product ending up. You started selling at markets, but one day you envisioned being on store shelves. So in order to do that, you have to think about how do you want to look in order to attract the right opportunities? Yeah. So that's funny that you mentioned that because our strategy has completely changed and that actually was pre-COVID. And, uh, you know, I was tired of doing the markets. I knew I wanted to just be able to stop those. I wanted to have a baby. It was really exhausting. And so I told my husband, I think around the end of 2019, I was like, I don't want to do the markets anymore. And he's like, great, don't do them. And I'm like, but that's how I'm making money. How will Mm -hmm. I make money? And he's like, we got to sell it online. And I'm like, I am doing that, but like, I'm not doing it a lot. And so we're like, okay, we got to spend the end of this year and early next year building up some type of online strategy. And then, so I'm praying, right? I'm talking to God and I'm like, God, I don't want to do these events anymore. And he's like, cool, COVID. Yeah, look at God (laughs) with COVID. (laughs) But I'm like, but God, I was going to do some events, like the big ones I was going to do. Like now I can't do any events. And so... I say that to say you have to be able to pivot and Mm -hmm. we kind of had to do that. And so it's funny because our strategy now is completely D to C and and like online and online retailers, Amazon, our wholesale accounts, you know, we're in a few stores, we're in a whole foods, but retail is not our strategy right now. So it's Mm -hmm. funny that initially I was like, oh, we're going to be on these shelves, but it still worked out right. Because you still want a branding that speaks to you, packaging that really kind of tells your story. And it's that word bubble, you know, I just like the way it looked and people now are um, always deciphering what it means and saying like, oh, your brand speaks to me like the word bubble. And it's funny because I didn't think that initially, you know, but they're always coming up with these reasons behind it. So 
But it works. And it's interesting. Initially, you thought physical shelves, but the online space can be saturated. There's so many things vying for people's attention. So you still have to design with, you know, catching people's attention in mind. But how do you balance curating your online presence with actually doing the work that generates revenue for your business? Because some business owners get caught up in, you know, the pretty graphics for social media and things of that nature. Wow. Well. I will credit my husband to pushing me in the right direction because I used to always want to do just the creative, fun, pretty stuff. And I would always just ask him because, right, because I have like no one else to ask. So I would be like, hey, should I do this? And he used to always say, is it a revenue generating opportunity? And this was like years ago, you know, and I'm like, what's that? I don't want it like that, you know, and it's so funny now because I'm like, I don't really think any other way now. But initially I was like, well, no, but it looks good. Right. And I would say, like, you never let me do the fun stuff. And he's like, well, it's your business. You do what you want. But it was valuable advice. Right. So I would definitely say spending the bulk of your time on revenue generating opportunities. You know, I do spend time making graphics now and editing video and shooting content and stuff that I like to do, but it's fewer and further between and, you know, what it used to be. So I, I try to focus on, you know, you know, I would say create a percentage for yourself. I don't know. It, 75% of what you do should be a revenue generating activity or opportunity. So is it something that's directly going to make you money? Or are you just like making something pretty because you want to, you know, spending time on your website is important. Like if you're a D2C brand or selling online is important to you, then making your website look good is important. It's not a a waste of time making it pretty. But if you're making pretty graphics for social media, but your engagement is low and you're not gaining any traction, then, you know, maybe switch up the strategy a little bit. Yeah. And just for anyone wondering, D2C meaning direct to consumer, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And so I'd love to know which lines of sales have been most effective for you because now you can have products for sale directly on your social media grids. So is that more, you know, is that generating enough to be worth your focus or is it mainly your website driving your traffic and sales? Instagram brings 74% of our customers. It's huge. Maybe it is worth spending the time on it then. But, and you know, it it does other things, right? It builds credibility for our brand. It's helped grow our, our followers. Yes, but our real, like our real followers, not just our followers, like the number at the top, right? Our real followers as in people Like your tribe. Our tribe, we call them our jamily. You know, people that like actually rock with us and who follow us because they want to see what we're doing and what successes we've had and what challenges we've had. and. It's been successful in that route. And then it helps with like PR too and press, right? Other brands can come to the page and see. I mean, it's almost like your resume now. It's Mm -hmm. the first thing people see. So if someone says like, oh, I heard of this jam brand and maybe I'll write about them in an article. Let me go to their page. But it's not just about following. They look at the way the page is presented, how often we're posting, how consistently, you know, that what are, what's our tone of voice? What are we saying? Right. All that they look at to say, Oh, that, okay. This is an appropriate brand that we want to write about. They fit our aesthetic. So Instagram is very important for us in more ways than one. Wow. So if your product-based business where seeing is something that really moves people, maybe you do 
you know, invest more time in your social media in order to get more sales? Because 76%, you said? 74. Or 74. Yeah. That's amazing, it's right? It's huge. It's huge. Yeah. Yeah. So that's some, that's a good point to note there. Now you said before the pandemic, the bulk of your sales were coming from in-person events. How did you manage to not only keep going, but to pivot and then make record sales? What did that pivot look like? I will not take credit. I feel like sometimes you're just in the right place at the right time. And it was perfect, or I guess you could say an imperfect storm with the political climate last June and George Floyd's death murder. And so it was just a a storm, right? A snowball effect of a bunch of different things. So we were already focusing more on social media to drive traffic, right? We were already setting up our products, right? So that people could, you know, find our products on Instagram directly and be able to purchase there. Mm -hmm. We were just doing a bunch of different things to try to like ramping up our newsletter, right? To like get people to purchase online. And then that happened and it just, our our sales went crazy. So I can't even take credit. I mean, we definitely were putting the work in, but I think we grew much quicker because of that and less of my efforts. But my husband would kill me for saying this because I've said this to him before. And he's like, no, he's like, you've put in so much work over the years that have all led up. You were ready to receive. You had the foundation because there are a lot of people who received the attention, but the traffic just flowed right through. No one stuck around because they were not ready for it. So you definitely had done the work, just like your husband said. But I heard that you had like $75,000 in sales while you were eight months pregnant. What was going through your mind at that time? So we were in January, our sales were probably, gosh, $1,500 a month. So Mm. low. And I was just like, what are we going to do? Like, how are we going to get these sales up? We're not doing these events. And by April, our sales went up to like $8,000 a month. So I was like, oh, great. Like, people being home is allowing them to want to cook and like buy specialty food online. And so it really, I was like, oh, this COVID thing is actually going to work out. And then in June we did $80,000 and we probably did. Yeah. We probably averaged out at about a hundred thousand dollars a month after that every month. And yeah, I was eight months pregnant in June and gosh, I blacked out. I don't, I can't even tell you what happened because it was such a challenge. I mean, I was so swollen and so tired and so stressed, but trying not to be right. Because I was Mm -hmm. like worried about the health of myself and my baby. So trying to just like pretend I was okay. But like, I, you know, and my emotions, I was like crying and my ankles were swollen. And then my like mom was here staying with us. She got stuck here. And so my husband and her were just like, giving me so much shit, like sit down and rest and like, right. But I'm like, but you see all these orders, like, cause we were fulfilling out of my apartment. So it yeah. was crazy, honestly. But you know what? I, I always say like, wh- you know, whatever success you want to call it that we've had is attributed to preparing in advance for things, even if you're not ready. So like when I was making jam in my apartment and my husband said, you know, you got to get a shared kitchen. You have no space. I didn't think I could afford it, but I still put together a spreadsheet and did the research and put all the information Mm -hmm. down and compared the different shared kitchens. And then one day when I was like, I think maybe we could afford it. I already did the research. So this, the transition was smooth, right? And then when we were exhausted and tired at the shared kitchen, I had just maybe two months before put another spreadsheet together, compared all the manufacturing prices. And so right when we were like, okay, 
we need to switch to a manufacturer. We were ready, which actually worked out because right when I quit my job was when we switched. And when I quit, I uh, got this feature in Bon Appetit magazine, who I had worked in the building with Bon Appetit and been trying to get them to write about my jam for the years that I worked there. Right. The last week that I was there, they wrote an article and we got like 300 sales overnight or something crazy that I had never had, but we switched to the manufacturer seamlessly, right? Because we mm-hmm. had done the research. And if I hadn't, we would have been scrambling to get all that done. So if that makes sense, I, I know that's a long-winded way of saying, but everything that's happened, we've been prepared for. So I have been preparing my supply chain and my system of getting products to customers. And so mm-hmm. when June hit, it really was more so of just doing more of what we were already doing. It wasn't a scramble to fix things it was a scramble to work faster and get better at what we had already built. Mm-hmm. And it looks like it was a blessing for you to have your mom stuck there with you and maybe a few people who could help you with the packaging while you were about to give birth. But I did hear that you were literally writing SOPs for people to help you while you were like in the labor ward. Yeah. So in retrospect, how would you have prepared differently for the birth of your daughter? In retrospect, it all worked out really smoothly. It all was just, gosh, it was God's timing. I I don't know what, you know, I don't know what anyone believes in, but God was like right there with me, walking me Mm. through this entire thing. I mean, yeah, I could have written some SOPs sooner. I had thought about it. (laughs) That was my preparation. I had thought about it. So it wasn't a new concept, but I hadn't written them. And mostly too, because it was COVID. And so I didn't expect to have anybody around me that would need the SOPs. So I had thought about them and I had wanted to write them in the past, but I was like, you know, I'll get to that at some point when I will have a team helping me. But because it was COVID, I was like, no one's going to be helping me. And then when this happened, I had no choice, which was another stress because, you know, I had two employees in here in my home helping me in, you know, standing three feet from me and I'm pregnant and it's the height of a pandemic. And I'm like, don't breathe on me, but also come over here and let me show you how to do this. And it was so much, it was just, oh my God, I was so stressed about it, you know, because I just like, I was freaking out, but I had no choice. I needed the help. So yeah, I mean, I guess I could have written some of those SOPs sooner, but the good thing is both of the um, teammates that were helping me had worked with me before and they're just really great people and they picked up everything very quickly. So yeah, and I needed something to distract me. I was induced. And so I was in labor for at least 24 hours, just like chilling. So yeah, I had the laptop propped up on my belly and my husband took a picture of me and I'm, and I've got like a blood pressure thing on one finger and I'm typing, trying to like build these SOPs. So my mom can show the employees at home what to do while I'm in the hospital. So. (laughs) Oh, wow. So you said that your sales have been consistently at hundred K, which is impressive because I've always wondered people who got the boost in June did it continue or was it a one-time spike? So it averaged out at that in 2020. I don't want anybody to think we're over here rich or anything. That was the average, but no, it's definitely leveled out. We're probably doing more like 20 or 30 a month now, but did you hear me say last January, we're doing 1500. So, you know, yeah, I always have to remind myself when I'm like, oh, March is a slow month. And my husband's like, pull up your sales. And it's like 26,000. He's like, oh, slow. That's slow now. And I'm like, thanks for the reminder. (laughs) He's always like putting things (laughs) into perspective. So yeah, it definitely leveled out. But I think now my job and other businesses who are listening, it's your job now to the businesses that 
were able to retain some customers, right? Like you were talking about the businesses that where the customers like ran through, right? Not those businesses, but the, the businesses who were prepared in a sense, who do have, and maybe those are those businesses, but who do have a good foundation, who do have structure, who have put in the work and who are ready to maintain those kind of sales, those businesses. Now it's your time to say, okay, maybe I need to boost my ad spend a little bit to, in order to continue this on. Maybe I need to create a newsletter. If I don't have one, build a stronger newsletter, hire, whatever it is, it's our job now. You know, God brought us all that success in the midst of chaos and some really sad and unfortunate things. So you know, he did the work. And so now it's our jobs to just be good stewards over the business and be able to continue on with that. Oh, I love that. Be good stewards of it. So what does that next phase of growth look like for you? Next phase of growth. Uh, this year's goal is to hit a million. So we're on track. We're going to. This year's goal is also to get capital. So uh, we're trying to raise just a, a very small, like pre-seed round, like 500,000, just to kind of help boost a little bit. So we're going to, we're on track to do that. And I don't know, you know, I can't really think past like tomorrow sometimes, unfortunately. As a founder, I hate when people are like, oh, what are your goals? Because that's such a common question, right? And I should just prepare a script because I honestly just want to be like, I don't know. Look, what are your goals? I don't know. Like, I can't, I'm like- You say, I, mean, I don't know. And then in the same breath, you kind of laid out, you laid out your plan. <laughs> well, that, you know, you got to have something, right? Especially for mm -hmm. investors. Like, you can't be like, I don't know my plans, but can you give me money? So like, yeah, we've like laid out some goals, but like, I honestly, I can't. Sometimes I can't even think past like this month or, you know, like even mm -hmm. in like the holidays are nuts and I like can't even- put my mind to that right now, but soon, like by next month, yes, I will be like planning the marketing for the holidays and like worrying about the next phase there, how to really capitalize on that. Cause last year was like black Friday was crazy. It was like buy black Friday and um, black owned Friday and all these different like monikers for it. But yeah, I, I don't have a ton of plans, but my big plan is to grow quickly and grow big and sell the company and get rich. And yeah, I don't want to hear shit about it. People are like, you're going to mm. sell your company. I'm like, yeah. They're like your baby. Yes. I have a baby here. I'm going to sell this one. And, and then, yeah, be able to do some other fun things. I'd love to be able to do some scholarships for other black owned businesses, other women owned businesses, do some master classes, share any knowledge that I have, that what I have learned, knowledge is power. And we're trying to create this generational wealth. And so being able to share what I've learned is wealth. So, so much coming on the horizon for you. How can we support you? Where can we find you? Especially since we are about creating the generational wealth within our community. Yeah, how you can support is buy jam. If you love it, then continue to buy jam, right? Repeat customers is what we need. And so if you love the product, keep it going. Screw smuckers. It's crap. It's not clean. It's not healthy. We've got some way better stuff that you can put in your cocktails and all different things. So check out the jam. We just came out with a hot sauce. We have a mocktail mix um, that you can add al alcohol to, or you can drink it by itself. And so support, like literally just support is how you can help us. And you can head to our website tradestreetjamco.com tradestjamco.com and a Trade Street Jamco that's also our Instagram handle follow us follow our journey. I share a lot of stories about like entrepreneurship too. So if you're a black entrepreneur, a young entrepreneur, a woman entrepreneur or just an entrepreneur, check out my stories. I'm always sharing like tips and highs and lows and everything. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing your story, Ashley. 
Thank you so much for having me. Hi, Offscripters. I'm so glad you made it to the end of this episode. If you enjoy listening to our show, please pay it forward by sharing us with your network. Between episodes, you can find me on Instagram. Our handle is at She's Off Script, or you can catch up on past episodes at She's Off Script.com. See you on the next one.